Trump, is this the beginning of the end, or is the American president bulletproof? Northern Ireland veterans voice their concerns about historical allegations. And the Royal Navy's new aircraft carrier sails off to meet the F-35 jets. It's a step towards the full carrier strike group that the UK will sustain for the next 50 years. Welcome to SITREP with me, Tim Cooper, this week. Is it the beginning of the end for Donald Trump? Today, the US president admitted providing hush money for two women who claim they had affairs with him, but is denied breaking campaign finance laws. His former lawyer, former lawyer Michael Cohen, has pleaded guilty to breaking election laws over the deals. Now, Mr Cohen may be willing to share information with Robert Mueller's investigation into claims of collusion between the Trump election campaign and Russia. I'm joined by Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham and in the studio with me, Christopher Lee, the BFBS defence analyst. First of all, Scott Lucas, welcome. Good afternoon. How have events this week changed things for Mr Trump? Will he go down for this, do you think? Uh, this is the latest layer on about seven levels of political and personal trouble for Trump. So on the one hand, given all that's already happened, I don't expect him to depart within the next few days or maybe even the next few months from the White House. But I think it is fair to say that the nature of the revelations from Michael Cohen, specifically for the first time, someone saying under court oath that Donald Trump is directly involved in criminal activity, that combined with the expanding information in the Trump-Russia inquiry led by Special Counsel Robert Mueller, if this is not the beginning of the end for Trump, it is definitely the end of the beginning. And I expect by this time next year he may be out of office. Yeah, I mean, to use an analogy, an apt one perhaps, it's like Russian dolls, isn't it? We're opening another layer and going down and down and down with these allegations coming out, aren't we? Um, what about, though, the, the future for him? It's been a black legal week, but he does what he wants, quite frankly. And uh, would you bet against him going for a second term and getting it? Well, certainly Trump, in his hashtag winning mind, would always say that he's going for a second term and, of course, will win it because, you know, he never loses. But, of course, the, in a broader sense, this is just the line that Trump and his defenders put out to try to sweep away not only all the political issues that are here, but the legal issues. And I think we really need to look at two things here that sort of reshape the future. I think the first is, is that despite Trump maybe having a 30 percent base of Americans who support him come hell or high water, if the November elections go against the Republican Party, uh, not just if the Democrats win a majority in both houses of the U.S. Congress, but if the GOP does uh, very badly in polling, then I think some Republicans may start to think, do we really want to tie ourselves to this guy, given, in fact, that things will probably only go downhill from there? And secondly, it's just the extent of the legal issue. You know, you can talk about opinion polls. You can even talk about what happens in an election. But if Robert Mueller comes out early next year with a full sweep of evidence that shows that Trump and his advisors were engaged in a conspiracy with a foreign power, namely Russia, to influence the 2016 U.S. election. That is a transgression on such a scale uh, that I don't think Trump can simply say, I'm going to my base, chant lock her up with respect to Hillary Clinton rather than to about himself and expect to survive. Scott, um, some guidance here. 
if, let's say, Robert Mullard goes uh, the way you're suggesting he could, does he first have to go to the House Judiciary Committee uh, and get them on board? And given what may happen in November, presumably um, the House will be stronger and democratically it'll be stronger. Then he has to, in theory, I suppose, get 66% authority from the Senate. Now, that is a, a, an amazing sort of political uh, trek, isn't it? So maybe it's all ready to go already quite possible that he could he could be brought down, especially uh, by what the F FBI may bring forward to even to the Supreme Court with a subpoena. Maybe it's all just too much to get rid of Donald Trump, who simply stands there and appeals to his voters. Really good question, but I, I think the scenario plays out in a slightly different way. And that is... Uh, Robert Mueller's investigation is an independent investigation, so there's no House committee that can stand in the way of it. In fact, that's why the GOP has been unable to curb him, despite Trump's anger so far. So if Mueller comes forward next year, and let's say that it is pretty much uh, a convincing case that the Trump campaign and the president knew the Russians were going to interfere in the election, and they at least aided and abetted that, then I think the option is that someone goes to Trump a uh, family member, close advisor, and says, look, Mr. President, uh, you really have two options here. One is, is that you can tough this out, but the day after you finish your term in office, you will be facing criminal charges and possibly a prison term. Or, like Richard Nixon in 1974 over Watergate, you can resign now, hand over, get yourself pardoned, and avoid the humiliation. In other words, you can step aside at this point, or you can face the music later. What do you do? And I think even someone as, let's be honest, as stubborn as Trump may give way at that point. He is ultimately Scott a businessman and, you know, makes decisions based on probability of success, I suppose. Just finally and briefly on this one, Scott, if I may, we're all viewing this from Europe, yourself in included. Why does it matter to us so much? Well, of course, I mean, America's great influence in the world. And in terms not only of the domestic scandal, but also in terms of its foreign policy, the Trump administration, to say the least, has been chaotic and unpredictable. And at times, I would argue, quite downright damaging in terms of international affairs, including to its own alliances. But I think beyond that, we're talking about a question of responsibility of power. And when you have a leader of a country who in my opinion, insults his opponents, tells, according to Fact Checker, almost 4,500 lies in 18 months. And on top of that, may believe that he is so immune from accountability that he can break the law and get away from it, tearing down his own agencies in the process. That type of poison doesn't just stay within the United States. It does affect other countries in the way that we consider our relationship to our politicians, even in the UK. Um, in other words, Donald Trump is setting not only an, an example which I think is, is detrimental for the U.S., it's an example which is detrimental for those countries beyond America. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Professor Scott Lucas. A pleasure talking to you as ever. Professor Scott Lucas there, the Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham. Meanwhile, the new Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, has been in Washington. He made a speech at the US Institute of Peace where he spoke of challenges to global democracy from Russia, China, extremists and also the fraying of domestic support for democratic systems in our own countries. He went on to say how the world should be dealing with these challenges, highlighting the importance of alliance. 
Those who don't share our values need to know that there will always be a serious price to pay if red lines are crossed, whether territorial incursions, the use of banned weapons, or increasingly cyber attacks. And part of that credibility comes from unity. We showed that this year with a strong, united response from 28 allies to the use of chemical weapons in Salisbury. 153 Russian intelligence officials were expelled, including 60 who were removed by the United States, more than any other country. And the US has since gone further by announcing sanctions. Combined with the decisive US military response to Assad's use of chemical weapons in Douma in April, joined by Britain and France, we can see that the red lines on chemical weapon use have started to regain credibility. And today the United Kingdom asks its allies to go further by calling on the European Union to ensure its sanctions against Russia are comprehensive and that we truly stand shoulder to shoulder with the US. That means calling out and responding to transgressions with one voice wherever and whenever they occur, from the streets of Salisbury to the heart of Crimea. Christopher Lee listening to that with me in the Sitrep studio. That was Mr Hunt's first speech as Foreign Secretary. Your thoughts on it? Well, yeah, last job I did in the Navy was to work for his father, ah. who was the smartest admiral that I ever worked for. And it, listening to that, it's the same sort of speech that I heard twice at uh, two, once in Brussels. And apart from cyber, which we didn't think much about at the time, it was this idea that quietly delivered, be fair to everybody, but tell people who the enemy is. And if you don't tell people who the enemy is, they don't know why they're spending all this money, but also it brings you together as a, a solemn force. And it was the solemn force that his father used to talk about that was exactly that. If you do that, People will listen to you. It struck me in a number of ways as well. It was very solemn. It was a complete counterpoint to the previous incumbent in the post, of mm. course. And it also mirrored, not in delivery style, but in tone, the words we've been hearing from Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary. Yeah, it was almost as if he joined the Navy. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's also true that his father, one of his father's important things, that he was Sink Fleet at the mm -hmm. time I worked for him. And uh, therefore he had a NATO, it was a NATO command as well. But they wanted him to go to Brussels as chairman of the military committee and he refused to do so. And he said, that solemn way of doing things, you do it quietly, but it's not done by me, the Admiral. It should be done by the Foreign Secretary. And today, or last week, it was done by the Foreign Secretary's son. It's interesting, isn't it, how things continue and evolve and turn around through the generations. Still to come on the programme today, HMS Queen Elizabeth sets sail to meet the F-35s. But will it all go to plan? Really, that first day, we'll get a, a, an early understanding of how the jet and the ship work together. Now, former soldiers who served in Northern Ireland have voiced their concerns about so-called legacy investigations at a public meeting. Sean Grezcheck was there for SITREP. Sean, who called this meeting and what was it for? 
Well, Tim, at the moment, the government is in the middle of a public consultation on the legacy of the Troubles and forming plans to look at the cases of around 1,700 deaths related to the conflict. Now, veterans who served during uh, that time asked for the meeting. Uh, officials agreed to come to Sutton Coalfield Town Hall in uh, the West Midlands to address them as part of the actual consultation process itself. Uh, so it was a bit of a, a mutual moment where the officials could take down the veterans concerns and the veterans could listen to what they were have to what they were saying as well so 30 people attended amongst them 77 year old Dennis Hutchings a former regimental corporal major in the lifeguards who served in Northern Ireland during the troubles and he is facing prosecution he denies charges of attempted murder and attempted grievous bodily harm with intent relating to the killing of John Patrick Cunningham in 1974 he is one of a number of veterans who served during this period who is facing prosecution and I asked him what the mood is like amongst veterans right now. Very, very angry at the way we're being treated by the government. We're just fodder. As far as we're concerned, we're disposable, like nappies. And the organiser of the meeting himself, representing the veterans, had a, a clear message specifically for the Prime Minister, didn't he? Yes, he did. Uh, he was the one that called for this meeting. You might be wondering why it happened in, in the West Midlands. That was simply, I think, a, a location chosen because it was central. So Alan Barry is the co-founder of the, the group Justice for Northern Ireland Veterans. He decided to talk about the only other female Prime Minister we've had in the UK as an example whilst trying to get his message across. Theresa May should take something from the Iron Lady. She would turn in her grave if she saw the way her boys were being treated. And Theresa May could learn a lot from Margaret Thatcher. Strong words there indeed, Sean. What's been the response from government? Well, they've put out a statement, Tim. I'll read it for you. I've got it here. It says, This government will always salute the heroism of our armed forces and police officers, and we must never forget our debt of gratitude that we owe them. Without their contribution and sacrifice, there would have been no peace process in Northern Ireland. That is why it is so important that their voice is heard in this consultation. Everyone acknowledges that the current system isn't working well for everyone, and we are consulting on the best way to move forward and create a fair, balanced and proportionate system for addressing the legacy of the Troubles. Now, this is a hugely emotive subject. It's, it's been going on for an awfully long time, but what about the legal standpoint from experts on the legalities of this? Well, Tim, some people might be asking the question, has the spirit of the law lost its way by going after veterans when IRA operatives received an amnesty? That's a question we put to lawyer and broadcaster Joshua Rosenberg. I think the spirit of English law has always been that uh, if people commit criminal offences, they should be dealt with by the courts. I don't think uh, amnesties or statutes of limitations in criminal cases are something we're familiar with in our law. And I think that most people would hope that justice can be done in the traditional way. That was broadcaster and legal affairs expert Joshua Rosenberg. Finally, Sean, what more can you tell us about the government's consultation over this issue? Well, it outlines plans for an historical investigations unit, which would have a caseload, we think, of about 1,700 troubles-related deaths and aim to complete its work in five years. 
An independent commission on information retrieval, which would only look for information if asked to do so by families. An oral history archive, which would collect recorded memories and stories about the Troubles in one place. And an implementation and reconciliation group uh, representing the UK and Irish governments, along with the five biggest Northern Irish political parties. The consultation ends next month, and I'm told by officials a response is expected within a few weeks after that. Okay, not too long to wait to hear the response of that then. Sean Grescheck, thank you. The Royal Navy's aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth has set sail for the United States to meet up with the jets that will be flying on and off her for the very first time. The planes are American, some of the test pilots are British, but it's all designed to practice 500 takeoffs and landings over the next three months and to put 42 commando ashore on raiding exercises. This should make sure that it all works. Before the ship set sail, I spoke to Commodore Andrew Betton, who is the commander of the UK Carrier Strike Group. This is the, the realisation of many years of theory and planning and discussion. Uh, we've wargamed various scenarios to work out the scale and the composition of the task group we need. But this year we'll see the first deployment of a small task group, but it's a step towards the full carrier strike group that the UK will sustain for the next 50 years. So this uh, trials deployment to the east coast of the United States to embark the first F-35B jets is a very important step, but it is a trial deployment first and foremost. So how is this deployment going to work? Well, Commander James Blackmore is Commander Air of HMS Queen Elizabeth and also, as it happens, the last Sea Harrier pilot to fly off the last aircraft carrier HMS Ark Royal. So um, the, the first day, in essence, um, two of the F-35s will come out from Pax River, the, uh, the, the test facility we're using. Um, and in essence, they're both going to arrive uh, individually in the hover alongside uh, and land just on the deck down here below us um, at three spot. But we're not going to stop. We're, we're then going to um, refuel those aircraft uh, and we're going to get straight into launching them. Um, so uh, really that first day, uh, we'll, we'll get a, a, an early understanding of how the jet and the ship work together. And that's the first time we've brought them together, obviously. So um, it'll, be a, it'll be a really good day, uh, exciting day, uh, and I think it'll be something that people will go, we finally arrived. How important, though, is this in terms of UK defence? I also spoke to Captain of HMS Queen Elizabeth, Captain Jerry Kidd. Well, I think having an aircraft carrier capable like this sends a very clear message. She's also, uh, with her sister Prince Wales, of course, a strategic asset. You know, people take notice of aircraft carriers of this scale. So I think it places the Royal Navy in the UK right at the top tier of navies around the world. And let's reflect on how many navies do have aircraft carriers and do it properly. Very, very few. So we should be very, very proud of what we've bought, what we've developed and what we're going to go on to deliver for the country. It's a very significant part of UK defence for the next 50 years and uh, we should be justly proud of it. And certainly from walking around on the ship before she left, they are all proud of it. They're extremely proud, very upbeat ship. Let's talk to naval historian and analyst Professor Eric Grove now who joins us on the line. Eric, welcome. Hello. This big naval moment, this, isn't it? Big ship meets big new jets for the first time, land on refuel, take off. That's what you do in a war. It's, it's the real thing, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, although at a very small, uh, small scale, as, you, as you've just heard, but it, it is a significant moment. And I know that Jerry Kidd, the captain, really wanted to be captain when that happened because he was captain of Ark Royal. It's interesting how the same people keep coming back. He was, he was captain of Ark Royal when she launched the last Harrier, and now he's captain of QE when the, it takes on board the first F-35B and 
and launches it. So uh, he's been sort of in at the end of the old and in at the creation of the new. And he's absolutely delighted with that. He leaves the ship in October, he was telling me. So this will be That's his right. final moment to uh, to get this there. Let's talk a little bit further about the F-35s, though, Eric. They're from the US Joint Operational Test Team out of Pax River. Um, yes. Should we be disappointed they're not British? Well, a bit, bits of them are British, you know. The back ends, the fins, are made in uh, are made at Salmsbury by BAE and flown across the Atlantic. And in fact, the British have been major partners in the programme ever since it started. In fact, originally, when the F-35B uh, and its uh, 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 um, companion aircraft were being thought about, they had to be small enough to fit in the uh, on the lifts of our old Invincible-class carriers. So, although it is an American aircraft, there's a certain Anglo-Americanness to it that is quite significant. Yes, there is. I think some people on, online and on social media have been wittering on saying, what about the people at RF Marham, the F-35s that are there? But from my understanding, Eric, the these test aircraft have all the analytical equipment that will be needed to really get a picture of what's going on landing on the carrier. That's right, yes, exactly. I mean, they are test aircraft and they're being used for tests and, and, and we should learn a great deal from it. I mean, we've had British aircrew flying in these test aircraft for some time. In fact, some of them um, have, uh, have, have British-style roundels rather than stars. So, that, so that it, it is very much an Anglo-American programme and, and, and it's a, a great step forward for Anglo-American sea power. Of course, when she goes to sea operationally, she's going to be carrying one American squadron and 617 squadron. So uh, it'll be a combined effort right from the start. These, um, <clears throat> these, ship, uh, these aircraft uh, are called wire, uh, orange-wired aircraft. And an orange-wired aircraft means it's got the, the gizmo, the gadgets, which means everything it does is goes back into the screens and it's a That's test right. flight. Uh, orange-wired is a bit like Formula One. You know, when the guy's driving around and, said, uh, and they say, well, it's, it's, it's great, your tyre your tire wears slight. <laughs> and that's what you know if you're driving one of these things. Um, the the other bit is that the uh, the, the British uh, contingent you'd have to get them up from Edwards Air Force Base. Now Edwards is out on the on the west coast, so it'd be daft to try and sort of ma- match yeah. the whole things up. They're the same aeroplanes. They are the same aeroplanes. From my understanding, yeah. um, it's three British pilots and one American doing these these tests. So very British. Brits very much the four, Eric. Exactly. Good. I mean, I mean, I mean, as one would expect. I mean, so, so I think it's important to, to stress the level of Anglo-American cooperation in this whole program, and uh, and the F-35B has got a tre- tremendous amount of British input. In fact, a certain amount of the of the technology and software comes from BAE, although B, you know BAE has an American incarnation too. So it's very much a combined effort, and I think the whole carrier program has been a combined effort. I remember being told right at the start by the first senior responsible owner, Admiral Guild, that in fact the main function of the aircraft was not purely to be a national asset, but to provide a sufficient amount of air power so that the British view would be taken into account by the Joint Force Air Component Commander. So right from the start, although it's right to stress her national aspect, she has been a combined mm. asset. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole thing about this combined is so important. Uh, when you when you think who has got aircraft carriers that can operate at this level, and it's not a question of how big they are or what they can fly off, but they're flying the same sort of thing. Um, they have the same procedures. They have to be ready to operate as one 
fleet, if you like, or one flotilla or one task force. And so the, what, how, even how you speak to each other and the, and the numbers that are called out and the numbers that the computers call out, uh, you know, fanciful things mm. like that, have to work together. And so this is a three-, four-year program. And eventually she sails off in the, in, in, in the 2020s and that becomes a, a big ability to project power. Let's draw this little discussion to a close. I want to ask one very final question. A new medal is going to be awarded to a Royal Navy ship's company that served in the Gulf. Christopher, what more can you tell us? You go back to 2016 and HMS Daring, uh, Type 45, uh, suddenly came under missile threat yeah. in, in, in the Gulf, uh, the Gulf of Aden. And uh, one ship was attacked, etc. And the way that these guys behaved got the whole, took the whole thing and protected merchant ships it's being recognised and it's going to be called the uh, the clasp. It'll go on the General Service Medal, but it'll be the, the, the Gulf of Aden clasp. Um, and it is, it's quite a good, it's a reminding. You know, people say, oh, the Gulf of Aden, you know, what's the ship doing there and how long has it been there? The Royal Navy never left the Gulf of Aden in 68 when the then Defence Secretary, Dennis Healy, closed down uh, yeah. everything else in the east of Europe. We've been there somewhere in the region of about 120 years still. Eric, uh, rightful recognition, do you think? Very much so, yes. I mean, and, and of course, the base in the Gulf has been enhanced. It's been reopened as HMS Jufire, its old name. So the Gulf is a major deployment area. And I'm pleased that this kind of service is, uh, is demonstrated and shown and show that we appreciate it. Because it's, thank uh, you. Because in the, the Navy does a great job. Eric Grove, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Chris Fowle, to pick up on the Type 31, because we've been hearing conflicting reports about what's going on with this class. What's happening? Well, listen, the Type 31 is, uh, you know, make me, a, make me a ship type vessel frigate. Uh, it's, it's basic. It's basic. And a couple of weeks ago, the MOD said they'd asked all companies to say, look, come up with a, with a quote, uh, see what we can do with it. And nobody really bothered very much. So the MOD cancelled it. Well, it's, I think it's really good news that next week they're going to start this again. The programme starts. It's called a prior information notice, which will be put out to next week. And it will say to companies, here is an idea. We want a, we want a people's frigate, if you like. Is it the analogy sort of wartime corvettes rushed into service? That sort well, of simplistic yeah, except that they vessel. exist. Yes, I suppose. So. I, I think the nearest thing to it was the Type 21, the Amazon class, yeah. which some time ago... Uh, Thorn, uh, what's his name? Thorn, uh, Vospers, yeah. Vospers, Vospers Thornigram, yeah. Thornigram, built on spec. Mm. And this is it. Now, 71%, and they want a lot, 71%, 70, 71% of these vessels, it's decided now gonna, they're going to be built in the United Kingdom. Now, if you do that, you do one thing that's very important. It means that everybody, all the suppliers, etc., all the blokes who make widgets, uh, get in on the act of building it, and the Clyde... Clyde stays open for part of the building, and that's that. That's very important. We we could see, couldn't we, like with HMS Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales, a, a, a modular build system utilising yards around the country. Then, oh yeah, I mean you you can build yourself. I don't know. You can build the Dodges in in in, in Appledore or something like that, uh, and, and just ship them up. And wherever the the, the slipway is going to be, you bolt the whole thing together. But it is a way to make a cheap uh, ship. Uh, that will go to sleep, sea for a long time. You have to remember that the Navy or the Ministry of Defence is at last getting used to a single idea. Why would you have a ship? It's somewhere to put weapons. Mm. It's not 
oh, we're going to build a ship, now we better get some weapons, because all ships look like this. And what they're saying is, think of it, these are the three weapon systems you need to have. You need to defend yourself against other ships, uh, anti-submarine warfare, and then a couple of other things. Uh, now, you build me a ship, I can put all that stuff on. And this is not quite new thinking, but it, it, it's refreshing to hear it will happen. Anyway, it, mm. uh, next week is the prior... Uh, in, in, information notice and that's really good. And it's very important because it fits in with the future as we were talking about there of the task force strategic task group oh, yeah. for the QEs. They'll want the first five of these ships by 2023. Now if you think about 2023 it's only four years away yeah. I mean, that's rapid firing uh, to build a ship in that time anyway. Particularly when Britain now is thinking 50 years ahead with the Queen Elizabeth-class aircraft carriers. That, again, is a sea change. But I just want to finish the programme this week on an altogether more ancient form of defence around Portsmouth Harbour in this instance. Mm. Lord Palmerston, 1860s, I think. Palmerston's Follies, they're known as today. Massive fortifications. Gave them to around. his brother to build. Yeah. yeah. A few quid a, made. There was a few quid sort of backhanding down Whitehall on that one. <laughs> and by the time they were built, they were completely obsolete. But the sea forts, of which there are three-stroke four, mm. St. Helens mm-hmm. is a bit smaller, um, did serve during the Second World War. And two of them have been converted into hotels, and they're up for sale, I mm. noticed this week. Mm. Five million pounds a pop for um, Spit Bank, and I think the other one is No Man's Land. That's right, and you get a, heli- you get a helipad. Mm. Uh, with it, and you get an uh, almost a good operations uh, room in it. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to be sitting in 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 that stretch of uh, English coastline, but it's a good idea. But anyway, five minutes. You know what can you buy? I mean, well, that, you can buy you can buy a three bedroom flat in in Portsmouth for for a couple of million anyway, can't you? <laughs> you could buy a whole street. Actually, no, uh, there is an example <laughs> though. This is uh, what's 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 interesting about this. You'd be very pushed to get rid of those ports because they were built so well in Victorian times that you would actually have to use probably a a spare nuclear warhead to actually destroy them. I think it's a nice... to the build of them another time. I think there's a lovely, lovely bit of history just sitting there. Wonderful bit of history. Christopher, thank you very much indeed for joining us this week. Don't forget to join us on our Twitter at BFBS SITREP. You can look for the podcast as well. Just search for SITREP when you download your podcast. From me, Tim Cooper and the SITREP team, thanks very much for listening. Until next week, goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.